<clears throat> we sent out a little flyer uh, announcing that we would be talking about what is possibly the most important verse uh, in the Bible today. And uh, I, I'm going to turn you to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And this is such an uh, important verse. I, I don't know for sure that it's the most important, but it's certainly important enough that it's quoted in the New Testament several times. Uh, and it's first found in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And I've got uh, so much material, I'm just culling out uh, what I think is useful. And uh, I, I do want to do two parts to this. This is part of our foundation series on things that are absolutely essential uh, to our faith. But Genesis 15, and let's read verse 5 and 6. Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6. Speaking of Abraham, it says that, that he, God, brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And now remember that this is Abraham and Sarah who um, they have two problems. One is that they are infertile, uh, have not been able to have children, and now Abraham is over, he's about 80 or 90 years old. And so they have the two problems. One is that they have been infertile all their lives, and now they are 80 or 90 years old. So when God says, look at the stars, and if you can count them, that's how many children you're going to have. And Abraham believes him. Highly unlikely in the natural realm and by human ability that that's going to happen. And what it... The next verse is our key verse, Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. Now that's our verse right there. Now the Old Testament is full of this idea of righteousness... And it's, it's uh, courtroom language, being right or wrong, uh, being justified or condemned. Um, Abraham himself says in Genesis 18.25 uh, that God is the judge of all the earth. The whole earth is like a big courtroom. God's the judge. In Jeremiah 9.24 he says, I am the Lord who exercises kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. He permeates the world with righteousness, right things. Psalm 11, verse 6 and 7. Upon the wicked he rains fire and brimstone, but uh, for the righteous Lord loves righteousness. He loves righteousness. He's a righteous God. Isaiah uh, 43, 9 says, uh, in keeping with the idea of the 
judicial background, the earth being God's great courtroom and God being the judge of all the earth, he says, bring forth witnesses. Do, uh, Isaiah 43, 9, let the nations be gathered and let the people be assembled in and bring forth their witnesses that they may be declared righteous. The Hebrew word here for righteous, he counted it to him as righteousness, is the Hebrew word sedek. It's often translated as justice or just being made righteous. So bring forth your witnesses. Let's declare things what is right here. That's what Isaiah 43, 9 said. There are accusers and charges and counter charges. There are advocates and lawyers. And If you're found guilty, you're said to be condemned. If you're found not guilty or innocent of the charges, you're said to be sedek, counted righteous, justified. Same word. Deuteronomy 25.1, if there's a controversy between two men and they come into the judgment scene, the judges may judge and they shall justify, sedek, same word used here, they shall count righteous, the righteous, the sedek. They, they count righteous, sedek, those who are actually righteous. And they condemn those who are wicked. That's the courtrooms. Now you would think, well, amen, you don't want to count righteous the unrighteous. But when you look at this here in Genesis 15, 6, it's a stunning, I don't think it's too strong, uh, idea that God counts Abraham righteous. And Abraham's not that righteous. Just to be honest, his story just beginning, uh, in fact, in the next chapter, uh, he can't have children, his wife can't have children, so Sarah says, you know, we have this, Egy- this Egyptian maid, Hagar, she's young and pretty, why don't you have children with her? And, and Abraham's like, okay. That's good. Now, that's also called fornication and not good (laughs) in the Bible. So he does and produces Ishmael, which ultimately produced the, the Arab nations and the Islam religion. And then if you look at Genesis chapter 20, they go down into this territory... um, And Abraham in Genesis 20 and verse 1 or verse 2 says, Sarah is not bad looking to be as old as she is. So I'm thinking they're going to try to take her from me and I don't want to defend her. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lie about her and say, she's my sister, go ahead and take her. Because, man, they do not fear God here and they, they might kill me and take her. So now that's, you can read Genesis 20. So he lies about his wife to save his own skin. And guys, that's not that good of an idea. (laughs) That's not heroic. That reminds me of the time I was first moved here. And and where I'm from, you 
you're friendly, you wave, you honk at people because you're saying hello. And I honked and a, and a guy honked back. And I could tell he was annoyed and so I got annoyed and honked back at him and he honked back at me and pulled behind me and started following me. He followed me all the way home and I pulled in the driveway, ran in the house and said, honey, if somebody comes to the door, you answer it. Abraham on a smaller scale, I'm afraid. So when it says that the Lord counted him as righteous, it's quite remarkable when you realize he's got more than one wife, he lies about the one he does have, he passes her off as his sister in order to save his own skin, and that's just part of it. And here's the judge of all the earth coming and finding Abraham not guilty before there's even a trial. This judge is acting a bit strangely here. From the moment that he believed, not from the moment that he obeyed, Abraham was counted righteous. So so that the idea is that when God comes to you, He starts where we tend to think He ends. You need, okay, now you know me, let's move you into righteousness. No, God says, I'm declaring you fully justified. Now walk with me. So that the beginning is as accepted to God as you will ever be. By faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul uses this over in Romans chapter 4. Paul quotes this over in Romans 4 you want to turn Romans chapter 4. We've got some of this, I think, on the screen, but it's Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Notice how Paul, as he's talking about how we get right with God, he brings up Abraham and the Scripture, Genesis 15. He says, what does the Scripture say? This is Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Quoting Genesis, he says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Then the next verse. Now to him who works... See, he's saying Abraham didn't get it by works. He believed. He believed God's promise. And it was counted. So Paul says, Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are... It's not a gift. You got wages and you got gifts. If you work all week and your boss comes to you and says, I have a gift that I want to give to you. And you say, cool. And he hands it to you and it's your paycheck. Thank you for this gift. And my birthday is coming up also, as long as I have a week to work ahead. But he says, the the gift is not wage. Wages are not gifts. Your wages is what's due. 
But Romans 4 verse 5, To him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I'm telling you, it's an amazing statement. Um, Do we have anybody that's ungodly here today? Because he says, to the one who does not work, that is, do religious works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Now, when did he do this? And this is a statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10. He says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? Does anybody know when Abraham is circumcised? Well, he's circumcised in chapter 17. That means Abraham is counted righteous, declared justified before God, before he had done the most important Jewish work that was part of the Jewish ceremony. It was the entrance point into Judaism, circumcision. And here is the father, the prototype of all Jews. Paul brings him up and he says, how was he justified? How did he become righteous? Was it before God declared him righteous before circumcision or afterwards? He said before he was circumcised. Paul uses the story of Abraham to pull the rug out from under the entire Judaistic structure in the first century. He, he'd go into a synagogue and say, you can be justified with God without the works of Judaism. You, without synagogue, without circumcision, without the Mosaic law. And they would, they would stone him. Give, what verse of Scripture would you use for that? He said, Abraham, the one you say is your father, the father of all the Jews. He said he was justified before God. And Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 4. And in so doing, totally undermines the entire old covenant idea and structure of works. You know, there is a New Testament for a reason. <laughs> it's because God has done a new work. He's done a new thing. And we're in the New Testament age. Now, what is this idea of being counted righteous? Let's look at this for a minute. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says, He believed the Lord and He counted it. And the Hebrew word there is hashab. H-A-S-H-A-B. Hashab. He counted it as righteousness. Or he counted him. He counted it to him as righteousness. What does counted mean? Well, let me give you some uh, places where this Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. Um, Genesis 31.15, it's used when uh, Jacob's wives, uh, Rachel and Leah... They, Jacob comes to him and says, Your father has mistreated me for 20 years, and I think we ought to leave and go back home. And the, 
Jacob, or Leah and Rachel say to Jacob, well, here's what they say, we are counted by him as strangers or foreigners. That's Genesis 31, 15. Using the word hashab. We are counted as strangers or foreigners. Were they foreigners? No, they were daughters of Laban. But they said, well, we might as well go because he counts us as strangers. Now that's a use of the word to count something so, when it's not so. It's used also, uh, this uh, Hebrew word in Genesis 38, 15, when Judah saw his daughter-in-law, his daughter-in-law was sitting alongside the road, and uh, her name was Tamar, and it said he counted her as a prostitute. The way she dressed, the way she acted, he put her in the category of prostitute. In his mind. Was she a prostitute? No, that was his daughter-in-law. But he didn't know that. So he counted her as such. Turn over to um, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. uh, Chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. This is the story of David when he's being chased out of Jerusalem by Absalom who's rebelling against the king, and David is exiting Jerusalem for his own safety. And in the revolt, as David makes his way out of the town, Genesis, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5, records that a man named Shimei, a descendant of Saul, comes out and starts throwing rocks at David and says, you're a bloody man. You're a wicked man. I curse you. And he picks up rocks and he throws these rocks at David. And it says, verse 6, he threw stones at David and all the servants of David. Verse 7 says, he cursed and said, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And he's keeping a bit of a distance, but he's, so he's throwing these stones. But Abishai says to David in 2 Samuel 16, 9, he said, why should this dead dog of a man throw stones at the king? Let me go over and cut his head off. And David says, no, no, don't do that. Now, David goes out, wins the battle, puts down the revolt. A few weeks later... He's riding back into town. And here comes Shimei. <laughs> now this is 2 Samuel chapter 19. And what do you think Shimei says? 2 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 19. The Shimei falls down before David the king. That's in verse 18. And 2 Samuel chapter 19 verse 19 says... Uh, O king, let not my lord Hashab count, hold me guilty, or remember what your servant did on the day you left Jerusalem. Don't take it to heart. Well, that's an interesting request. 
Because what he's doing, he uses the same word, hashab, and he says, don't count me as that. Don't identify me with my conduct. Just remove that from your mind and heart. And David, what, does anybody know what David does? David agrees. He says, all right, you're dismissed. And Shimei, while David lives, Shimei is in no danger. Now, that's the idea of Hashab. Don't count, here's what I am, uh, whether the girls are counted as strangers, but they're daughters, whether the daughter-in-law is counted as a prostitute, but she's a daughter-in-law, whether he's counted as a wicked curser, but don't hold it against him, remove it from your heart. Uh, and then there's one other one. This is in, um, in Proverbs 27, 14. I looked up most of these, but uh, I'm not saying every single one of them, but, but this gives you an idea what the, what the word means. Proverbs 27, 14. If you go to your friend early in the morning, say 5 a.m., and you bless him with a loud voice, knock on his window, bedroom window, hey, just wanted to say God bless you this morning. <laughs> what does he say? Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen. He that blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse. Hashab. Is it a curse? No, it's actually a blessing. But it will be counted as such. And so it will be treated as such. So these, the word hashab, when it says that he counted him righteous, listen guys, this is incredible. It means he's taking Abraham as he is, saying that he is what he is not, so that ultimately he will be what he is saying he will be. He's saying something is so. God is saying something is so. When it is not so, so it will be so. And Abraham is declared as righteous before God as he will ever be. And so Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Now, this is an amazing idea, this concept of being justified by faith. Let me talk about uh, its impact in history. This has had uh, quite a stir in the 16th century. Uh, well, even 1517, 1517, if you went back in Germany... In 1517, you would find that there's only one church. Uh, It's called the Catholic Church because Catholic is Latin for universal. So it's like the universal church, only one church. And it's called the Roman Catholic Church because it's headquartered in Rome. And uh, so if you decide you don't like your church, well, (laughs) you'll just have to adjust because there's nowhere else to go. If you say, well, what about the Methodist? There are no Methodists. What about the Baptist? There are no Baptists. 
There are no Presbyterians. There are no Church of the Nazarenes. There's only Catholic, the one universal church. And, now, and, and understand what I'm saying here. I have friends who are Catholic. Some of y'all may be Catholic. I know we have people who come who are Catholic. So this is not an anti-Catholic diatribe here. In fact, I met with um, a friend of mine who's a Catholic priest at the Holy Redeemer this week. I, I, wanted, I wanted to get his feedback on some of my questions because I want to make sure that what I said was true and in the spirit of what they truly believe. But in the 16th century, you didn't have anything with Roman Catholics. Well, what happened? Where did all these denominations come from? Uh, the church which they agreed with this had become corrupt. The popes had children running around. The Bibles were placed... Uh, this, comes, uh, this is in the 13th century, and now I got this off of a Roman Catholic website. This was a rule in the 13th century in France that no one may possess, and I'm reading this right out of their decision, a, a council of the church in France in the 13th century, no one may possess the books of the Old and New Testament. And if you do possess them, you must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days so that they may be burned. You could not possess a Bible. Why? Well, because the church didn't feel like it was like putting a gun in the hands of a child. It's a dangerous book. We, we should be the ones who interpret it and tell you what this means. We will give you the verses that we want you to hear. You are not able or mature enough and educated enough to handle the truth. Now, that's 16th century. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has adjusted a lot of things, um, but I think I'm correct in telling you that they were afraid of the common man getting the Bible. And so there was like one Bible in an entire city. Well, Martin Luther, here, he's this, here's this priest who's supposed to be a teacher in a university. He's working on his doctorate. And he comes across in his studies a, a Bible. And he starts reading the Bible. And he's like, where are sacraments in the Bible? Where is purgatory in the Bible? Where is pilgrimages? Where you go... Um, I, I'm, and I asked my priest friend this week, I said, do you still take pilgrimages? Can you still get indulgence for a pilgrimage? He said, oh yeah, yeah. But in, in the 16th century, you could go to another city where they had a tooth from St. Jerome and they would give you a certain number of days off your sentence in purgatory for that. It's called an indulgence. You could go see, for example, the swaddling clothes of Jesus in Rome or some other city. You could go see, for example, uh, some of the fabric of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you make this trip, and it gives you certain merit. Because here's the way they viewed it. This is 16th century. Is that the church had a treasury of merit. They got it from Jesus. 
uh, Jesus was more righteous than he had to be to get into heaven. They got it from the apostles. They were more righteous than they had to be to get into heaven. So you take this extra merit and you put it in the treasury. And the pope, who has the keys of the kingdom, he can indulge and he can dispense out of that treasury of merit to those who do certain things. If you go see the relic of Mary's uh, dress or swaddling clothes of Jesus or one of the nails that was in the cross, that's what they said they had, then that pilgrimage gets you an indulgence of certain number of days out of purgatory. So Luther's reading the Bible and says, where is this? I don't see any of this in here. I see justified by faith, not works. And I need this, he says, because he was trying to get right with God. He didn't have any assurance that he was right with God. He became a monk in order to get right with God. And then they came to Wittenberg where he was a teacher. This is in October 31st of 1517. Uh, A particular selling of indulgences... Uh, they were trying to build St. Peter's Basilica. You, give me uh, that uh, number six. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome uh, is, or at least used to be the largest church building in the world. Maybe still is. I've been in it. It's just huge. Give me the next one up. This is the, uh, the, this is the interior. It's just lavish. Can you see the congregation way up front there? It's huge. Um. And so they are building this in the 16th century. It actually took 120 years to build it. And they're raising money. And here's how they raise money. They would take, uh, under the representation of the Pope, they would go into a town and say, now, you give money toward the building of the St. Peter's Basilica, and we will take certain number of days off of your grandparents' period in purgatory. And so people were lining up. Uh, Give me number five. Do we see... This is one of the best portraits I've seen. There's like a marketplace. And here's Tetzel, John Tetzel, sitting there. Here's a woman offering a certain amount. How many will this get my grandmother? How many days will this get my grandmother out of purgatory? So he's saying, well, let me look and see here. And this is in Wittenberg where Luther is the primary preacher and teacher and he goes bananas. He said, this is not according to the Bible. You can't buy forgiveness of sins. There is no amount of money that can buy that. And then he said something that offended the Pope. He said, if the Pope wants to let people out of purgatory, let him use his keys and empty the treasury. If he can do that, then empty it out. Don't hold nothing back. Which that offended the Pope. Now this is 16th century Roman Catholicism. This is my church. This is our mother church that we came out of. Uh, So he began to preach. He, He took... This paper with 95 theses on it nailed it to the church's front door and said, I want to debate somebody on this right here. 
these theses, that you can be justified by faith, and he protested. Therefore, we're, the Protestants began to be separate from the Catholics, and then out of the Catholics rose various groups who interpreted the, the Bible in various ways. But you've got to view it like a tree trunk. Catholic Church was like the tree trunk, and then out came the limbs until you have the flourishing leaves and fruit as it grows and fills the earth. But one of the big differences was justification by faith. I picked this up, and I, and I also asked the, the, my priest friend this week, um, which, by the way, we are, we are good friends. I have spoken in his church, which at one time was the Catholic Church in Grand Blanc, uh, Holy Family. And I've had him at, at our mother church on Bristol Road, and we share coffee on occasion. And I said, do, we, do you still have indulgences? And he said, yes. Uh, and then I remembered this Bible. This is a Catholic Bible. And here's what it says in the front. Pope Leo XIII, this 16th century pope, granted to the faithful all who read for at least 15 minutes per day the books of the sacred scripture uh, and are granted an indulgence of 300 days. So that, what that's saying is that the Pope will give you, fifth, uh, if you read this 15 minutes a day, you will get 300 days off your time in purgatory. Now what Luther would say is, by the way, that's, a, that's 2002, so they still have indulgences. What Luther would say is, and I think what the Bible says is, and the re, one of the reasons I'm a Protestant is, that all of the suffering that was necessary for me to be righteous and all of the merit that I need to stand before God in prayer or in heaven has been given to me through faith in Jesus Christ in a single moment, not over a lifetime of good deeds or the lifetimes of other people's good deeds. Further, that there is no purgatory to go to because there's nothing to pay since Jesus paid it all. I don't, and I don't know of a... I'm like Luther on this. I know of no verse on purgatory. I know of none. The only verse that says we're purged is in Hebrews 1 where it says He Himself purged our sins on the cross in Hebrews chapter 1. Now I understand that there are Questions that go with this, what about works? Then why do we do anything? Doesn't this lead to license to live like you want? All of these questions are put in front of us and have been used and uh, used against the church since the gospel has been preached. It was used against uh, Paul in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. It's used against Luther. He said, you are turning people loose to just live as they want. Well, the thing that, uh, that Luther would say is that we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. It always has things starting inside, inside of it. That's why I wanted to do part two next week. Because we're the justification, but the thing that we've got to nail down is what some of you are striving for 
God's already given you as a gift. It's a gift. And you, you need to praise Him and thank Him for who you are in Jesus Christ. You get all of the justification that you will ever have in earth or heaven through faith in Christ. And how does Paul use this in the New Testament? And that will be my final point. How does Paul use this in the New Testament? I have basically one verse. Look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, which is really a, the whole chapter in Romans is, fourth chapter of Romans is a commentary on on the Genesis 15, 6 verse. But Romans chapter 4, verse 17, as it is written, see, notice how Paul continues it. He says that again up in, he says, what does the scripture say? Romans 4, 3. And in Romans 4, 17, as it is written, so he keeps referring to Scripture as his basis of authority, the Old Testament Scripture. He says, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. See, that's the God that Abraham put his faith in. The God who gives life to the dead. Because he couldn't produce children. But God gives life to the dead. So he didn't have faith in himself. He had faith in God who gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Huh. He speaks a word and it's so. That's, how, that's why he said, look at the stars. I'm going to give you that many. Well, God, if, if that's what you decree, you can do that. Because you can speak a word and it's so. How did you get righteous? Well, you get righteous because you go to church and, you know, you give and you, you especially give to the children's fund to build a new building. By the way, that is part of righteousness. We're going to add that. As we, <laughs> we do need to add something. No, we can't add that. That's where the church gets in trouble. It starts adding little things here and there and here and there. And Over 1,500 years, by the time you got to Luther's day in the 16th century, the church was corrupt. And it lost the gospel and the Bibles were taken away. And darkness ruled our minds. You must read the gospel in the word of God. But he says, so he speaks, Romans 4, 17, calls into existence the things that do not exist. You say, but I am not righteous. I know, but he speaks in things that exist that didn't exist before. In verse 18, in hope he believed when there was no hope. See, you've got to remember that since Abraham's a prototype of believing in God for righteousness, here's what he's saying. You are as unlikely to be a godly man or woman as Abraham was to have a son or a child and descendants like the stars of the sky when he's 100 years of age. The possibility of you being right with God is about as likely as a sterile, infertile, hundred-year-old having as many children as the stars in the sky. (laughs) Now, that's highly unlikely. 
And, and that's, what he said, that's what he's saying here is, Abraham, when there was no hope, he had hope. Why? Because he hoped in God. In Romans 4, 19, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. And that is why, Romans 4.22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, now verse, Romans 4, verse 23. And this is, this is precious. Dear people, this is precious. This will get you into heaven. The words, it was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone. For ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. The words, it was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone. It was written to you who believe in Jesus. That's how you get righteous. That message exploded in the 16th century. And it's still going on today. That's the gospel message. Justified by faith without the works of the law. Romans 3 20, by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified or righteous in his sight. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, Romans 3 and 22. So what are you looking at today for righteousness? Look away from your disqualifications Look away from your failures. Look away from your desires. Look away from your past. Look away from your lack of feelings. I don't feel it. When you say that, you're still looking inward. Look outward. Come here, Abraham. Here's what I want you to look at in order to... Be counted righteous. What? You want to look, look at me? No. Look up at what I have done. Look at my power. Look at my glory. Look at my goodness. He looked away from himself. And here's the gospel preacher. Come. Come. Here's the way you are counted righteous. Look at the, look at the cross. Look. But I... I don't feel contrite. I don't feel humble. I don't feel penitent. Look away. Lift up. Look to the cross. There's where your gaze must ever be until the day you die. When you get to the end of your life and you're on your deathbed, don't look inward or backward, but always upward to God and His Son. For by faith, you are Hashab, counted as righteous. May the Lord be praised. Let's bow together.
Father, we thank you today for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you today that you have given us a stunning and incredible concept of salvation in Christ. We praise you. We praise you. We glorify you. We glorify you. We thank you. Hallelujah. 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 To your great and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Part two next Sunday morning. I hope you'll come bring someone with you.